This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm excited for today's episode. We've got Tim Sesnick. That's right. Tim Sesnick, he writes the weekly column for the Globe and Mail, Tax Matters. Right. And he, he's, you know, talk about knowledgeable. Yeah. And well, here's the thing, right? We come from a family of accountants. We've got a ton of accountants in our family. Right. So much so that our last name should be Counting Son. Uh, counting sons. A long linear line of accountants. Um, but honestly, though, we wanted to have Tim on the program because we all read his column, his weekly column. And we get them forwarded to us. The, you know when accountants are forwarding articles on it's uh, basically stuff. on a weekly basis, it's it's good, useful information. It is. And and he always starts his articles with a story. He's almost like the Terry O'Reilly of uh, the he, Globe and Mail. He knows how... He weaves a yarn. Yeah, that's he can, for sure. He can definitely weave a yarn. But we're, we're underselling because he's not only a writer, he's also co-founder and CEO of our family office. And he's an investor, a financial planner. He also manages high net worth individuals. So that's um, right. Wears a lot of hats. You know what? And we should say, and a lot of people hate thinking, talking about taxes. Sure. But... I can say, like, both of our eyes, like, when when we talk about taxes uh, in a lot of cases, well, formerly when we used to talk about yeah, taxes. I was going to say formerly. Now I'm kind of obsessed with taxes. I'm obsessed with taxes as well, but I remember the moment in my life when my eyes used to glaze over. Like, once people started talking about accounting, I was just like, oh, I got to get out of this but conversation. But now it's, it's so clear. How useful it is. How useful it is. And it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. And For sure. And what you keep is fundamentally reliant on smart tax planning so it's about building the right team yeah and it's also being obsessive about 
tax planning yourself. And a guy like Tim Sesnick is the quickest way to getting literate when it comes to taxation in Canada. Sure, he makes it accessible. And and the the best net worth, highest net worth individuals that we work with, also they're obsessed with taxes oh, it, in a way yeah. and structuring their portfolios, right? Exactly. In an effective way. So so Tim is is our guest today and it is phenomenal. We talk about what makes a good investment, how he approaches investing in real estate as an accountant. He's also got some tax rules surrounding property flipping and uh, even some unique advice uh, more for our market where you see stuff like mortgage helpers and um, laneway homes. These are all things that, that Tim addresses in this Well, and he addresses in relation to the principal residence exemption. Well, sure. And how and that complicates, how that complicates that exemption. And that's something you want to know about and plan for. Absolutely, Matt. But before we get to that, we've got some fantastic guests coming up uh, towards oh. the end of the year and in the new it's year. It's almost like I'm, you know, starting with Tim, you know, December is usually when everybody slows down and we feel like we're, we're just ra- picking we're up. ramping up here. We're yeah. ramping up. We actually had on the program this morning, Gordon Price, which was a <sighs> Great. We, we ran long, like an hour and a half long, but it was uh, such a phenomenal conversation. We we also had uh, Janet LePage coming up. She has 10,000 doors. And she's acquired those doors in five years. It's insane. I don't it's even such know. a good conversation. Do the math on that. That's 2,000 doors a year. And as we mentioned last week, we have Richard Whitstock, developer, coming up. We've got super exciting guests. Stay tuned. The, we're gonna we're gonna go hard through the the rest of the year, and then we're gonna start 2019 Ooh. off with a bang. Yeah, that's for sure. But let's not uh, lose focus of the fact that we got this fantastic guest today, Tim Sesnick from the Globe and Mail, CEO, co-founder of our family office. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Tim Sesnick, co-founder and CEO of Our Family Office, Inc. How are you doing, Tim? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today. Um, can you maybe start, Tim, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. I'm, um, well, I'm a chartered accountant by background, or a CPA by background, um, but don't hold that against me. <laughs> I, try not, I, try, I try to live with a personality if I can. But I, um, uh, so I... I Began my career in one of the big accounting firms and, and eventually moved into tax and enjoyed uh, a career in, in tax for a while. Um, but then really discovered I, I really enjoy broader personal financial planning and wealth management. So ended up founding a firm that really helps affluent families make wise decisions about their money. Everything from tax and estate planning to investment management to um, you know preparation of tax returns and bookkeeping for holding companies and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of what the nature of a family office firm is and does. And so that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, my, my passions are, uh, are the great game of hockey. I have three kids that play and, uh, you know, I, I live vicariously through them now. And uh, we're also, uh, as a family, we're also investors in real estate as well because we, we like that asset class and just think it's uh, a great place to put some investment dollars as well. Excellent. So, uh, my, 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 yeah, my office, my live in Burlington and uh, my office is downtown Toronto. And um, that that pretty much sums up the most important parts of my life. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, no, and, and part of the reason we brought you on is we've been reading you in the Globe and Mail for, for quite some time. And and uh, so, so you invest in real estate. Can you talk a little bit about why you like real estate as a vehicle? <clears throat> well, you know, a couple of reasons I think we got into real estate as a family. My my father, uh, many years for many years, has been involved in real estate development, and um, more recently, just you know, in the last several years, 
investing in multi-unit residential properties. Um, not only that, but I've had the privilege of working with some of the most affluent families in the country and, and around the world. In fact, we, we, we work with uh, very successful families. When I take a look at how they've created the wealth that they've created, um, without exception, there's real estate in the picture. Some of them have made all their money in real estate. Some have made their money partly in real estate and partly in other businesses. <clears throat> but uh, I always felt you know, from a young age that owning real estate, probably even more than just my, my principal residence, would be a good idea for us. It's something I've been interested in. So, um, so I've done that. I've co-invested with, um, with, uh, some family members and we own a few small multi-residential properties. We're not by any stretch. Uh, this is, isn't my primary source of, um, my primary livelihood, but it's uh, something we sort of do on the side and I really enjoy it. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you approach an investment when you're looking at real estate? So what, what in your opinion makes a good investment? Well, you know, I I took the time and I'm still learning, in fact, uh, the various different ways you can make money in real estate. And of course, there's everything from sort of buy, fix and flip to to buy and hold. And we've sort of gone the approach of buying properties and holding them for the longer term. Um, and so when you when you assess a property that way, it's a little bit different than when you're just looking to buy, fix and flip or, or you know, or what they call, you know, wholesaling. Um, and so, you know, we're really looking for properties that that have good history of cash flow, um, where we think we can add some value to the property, either by adding an apartment or two, or by fixing up what's there and raising rents through the, through uh, you know through whatever means we can legally. So we look to buy properties where we can add value, and hopefully in another three years, five years down the road, we've, we've increased the revenues of that property, and that there you know that will of course uh, improve the valuation on the property as well. So we're looking to build equity uh, over the longer term in these properties, but in the meantime, we want them to pay for themselves. So, so we want to make sure that they they're they're generating cash sufficient to cover their costs, and that's just math, right? It's just knowing how to do the back of the napkin math when you first look at a property. But I'm sort of at the point now where I can take a look at something that might be um, available uh, wherever we've identified the property and do a quick back of the napkin math and figure out is this is this something that's uh, we're interested in looking at. Can we add enough value to the property to justify making an investment in it? Right. And and would you say that you're primarily interested then in multifamily? Yeah, that's the way we've gone. Uh, as, as a family, we've we sort of choose, chosen to do that. I, you know, it's funny because my, my, even my wife's family, my, my mother-in-law loves to, to buy fix and flip properties. And she's done a, a bit of that in her lifetime. Um, I'm not sure she's a scientific or about number crunching as, as I am on it. But she's done well at it, so um, you know we're thinking maybe of, look, of looking at some opportunities there as well to try to, you know, generate some profit that way and see how that works. Of course, these things are all taxed very differently, right? Depending how you sure the kind the kind of investing that you're making in real estate will dictate sort of how the tax will probably work at the end of the day. Right, right. And so, I mean, part of the reason we, again, we wanted to have you on is is because obviously you're a chartered accountant by trade. How does that give you a, a unique position when you're kind of monitoring these investments or, or, or how does that maybe shape what you're looking for when you make a real estate investment? Well, you know, because I'm a, kind of a numbers guy, and that's just the nature of accountants, I, I like to dig into the numbers a little bit, which is probably a good discipline for anybody who's looking to make an investment. I think a lot of people... Uh, who are maybe, a little, maybe less experienced will take a look at a property and, and and maybe not do the math quite right or maybe not do the math at all and hope to buy it and flip it for a profit or hold it for a while and sell it for profit later. But if you're not if you're not careful, 
um, those things can come back and bite you. So you really need to know what you're doing. So as an accountant, I'm a little bit more analytical than maybe some people are. So I, I think that's worked in my favor in terms of just being able to take a look at a, an opportunity and say, okay, is this likely to make sense in the long run? And there's there are tools out there, of course. Uh, there's software and there's there are books and things that people can read to educate themselves on how to evaluate properties. But you know, because I like, I like to get into the detail. That's the nature of accountants. It's probably served me well over time. Right, right, right. Whereas some people that can lead to paralysis, actually. <laughs> but well, that can be a good thing true. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think for especially when you're getting into your first property, or you know, pulling the trigger and making the first deal is probably the hardest one. Um, people can be gun shy, or but I, I've learned that as long as I've done my homework on it and I, I'm I'm confident in my my math and whatnot that I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty comfortable um, moving forward on a property like that. Right, right, right. One one of your recent articles in the Globe and Mail uh, titled "Selling Your Home Tax Free May Be More Complex Than You Think" talks about uh, principal residences and the principal residence exemption and and some of the complications that surround this idea. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, principal residence exemption? Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the most misunderstood parts of our tax law, and for good reason. It can be actually pretty complicated. Um, but what, what our tax law says is that um, you're allowed to designate for each year, each calendar year, you can designate one property as your principal residence. So, and, and the advantage of that is that you can actually sell a principal residence potentially tax-free. So if you only have one property and it happens to be your residence that you live in, you're, you're going to be laughing in the sense that um, you can designate that one property for every year that you live in it and that you own it. And, and and you should be able to sell tax free one day. Uh, there are some exceptions to to that, but I won't get into those just for a second. Um, where it gets a bit more complicated is when you own more than one property at the same time. And what what the tax law says is that again, each calendar year you have to designate one property as your as your principal residence. You can pick and choose uh, probably more than one property if you own more than one. Um, there's no requirement that you live full time in a property to be able to designate it as your principal residence. All the tax law says is that you have to ordinarily inhabit the property, which can actually mean, you know, the courts have shown that it could, that could mean as little as a, <clears throat> a few days a year even. Uh, so a cottage or a, or a cabin will often qualify as a principal residence if you, um, if you want to call it that. <clears throat> but let's, let me give you an example. Let's say you own your city home and you own a cabin or a cottage at the same time. Um, let's say you, own, you both bought them in the same year, let's say you know, 10 years ago, and uh, now you're selling one of the properties. And they've both gone up in value. Well, let's say you're going to sell the cabin for a profit. Do you want to shelter that property from tax fully? If you want to, you have to designate it as your principal residence for every year that you own it. But if you do that, then those particular calendar years are now spoken for. And you can't also designate your city home as your principal residence for those same years. So what that means is that um, you know, if you can only designate your city home as your principal residence for, say, 10 out of 15 years you've owned it, well, you're going to pay tax on some of the gain if it goes up in value. Um, the way to really avoid the tax altogether is by designating your property as your principal residence for every year that you own it. Actually, you could actually designate it for every year minus one. Um, we'll get into how the formula works, but that's basically the way it works. What I often tell people is if you're going to sell a property and you own more than one at the same time or you have owned more than one at the same time, go visit a tax specialist and talk it over with them and help to, help to figure out which property you should designate and, and shelter from tax. Question about you for, in terms of ownership, because a lot of people are, you know, perhaps renovating and flipping 
condos or houses. And, mm-hmm. and there's always the concern that if you live in it for a period of time after and sell it, a lot of people think that they can, they can use the principal residence exemption, although other people tend to disagree. What, what are the rules surrounding uh, flippers? Yeah. So it's a good question. And the answer is actually fairly straightforward. And I, I apologize because not everyone's going to like the answer, <laughs> but <laughs> um, the reality is that just because you buy a home and you live in it for a week or two or even a year doesn't necessarily mean that the government's going to agree with you that it, it really should qualify as your principal residence. What our tax law says is that the property that you sell has to be a capital property. Now, what is a capital property? Well, there's a difference between capital properties, which is like a capital asset, and business inventory. Okay, Business inventory is treated very differently than a capital asset. Capital asset is usually something that helps you generate income, could be rental income uh, or other types of income. Whereas business inventory is something you're buying, you're going to sell for a profit. But your intention was always to sell it. And it's possible for the government to come along and say, you know, that home that you bought is really more like business inventory. It comes down to what your intention was when you bought the property. So if your intention was to buy, fix, and flip, or just buy and flip a property, even if by flipping we mean a year from now, it's, it comes down to your intention. And, and the government could say your intention was not to, to truly hold it as a capital asset. It was to treat it more like business inventory, sell it for a profit, and therefore – we're going to treat that profit not as a capital gain, but as business income. And a principal residence exemption cannot be used to shelter business income. It can only be used to shelter capital gains mm-hmm. on capital property. So it really does come down to your intentions when you buy it. Um, the thing that's making it harder now is you, you used to be able to sell a place and you know just simply call it tax-free, pretend, you know, call it your principal residence. And if CRA ever came and asked questions, you try to justify it and you leave it, leave it at that. But now, or since 2016, we have to report on our tax returns on Schedule 3 every sale of a principal residence. And so if you're going to call a residence your, your principal residence, you have to report it. And that didn't used to be the case. It used to be you only reported it if it was going to be partly taxable. But now you got to report it no matter what. So CRA is going to see information like what year did you buy it, what year did you sell it, and it becomes a little easier for them to ask questions now about what your true intention was or to make mm-hmm. make guesstimates about what your intentions were when you bought it. If they think you bought it really just to probably flip it or sell it, uh, they may challenge you on it. doesn't mean you can't hold it for a short term. If your intention was truly to buy it and hold it as a, as a residence for you to live in, then um, you could you could justify calling your principal residence, but they're going to look at all the facts of the situation. And in the worst case, they might take you to court over it. You might take them to court over it. You have to fight it in front of a judge. But most of them don't want to do that. It gets to be expensive. So just be aware that if your intention was to buy and sell something over a relatively short period of time, you may run into a problem. Would you say that the 2016 requirement changed um, in your tax return? Was that a direct correlation between these ex- the explosive markets in cities like Vancouver and Toronto in the real estate market? Well, that yeah, that that highlighted the fact those 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 uh, really increasing valuations, especially in Toronto, Vancouver, but maybe some other places too, really highlighted the fact that a lot of people are making money in real estate. A lot of properties are selling for significant gains. Um, and it became, and it came to the attention of the government. Some of these gains are being 
earned by people who are not even resident in Canada. You know, they're, they're, they're foreigners coming in and buying real estate. Right. And the government recognized that there was some leakage there where, where they weren't collecting probably all the tax they should have been because some people were coming to Canada arguing that they're actually resident here and therefore are entitled to the principal residence exemption and not paying tax. So it caused the government to say, okay, we need to gather more information about all these these sales of properties, these purchases and sales. And that will give us enough information to go back and try to find where the red flags are and maybe go back and investigate these things more, more closely. So although it started with look, being more concerned about foreigners buying property, um, the government also realized that, that there are a lot of people out there who are, in fact, Canadians or living in Canada, but who were you know, doing the buy and flip, buy and flip um, strategy and were still trying to claim the principal residence exemption. So I guess the government figured at the time that as long as we gather this, gather this information on Schedule 3 of the tax return now, um, it gives us enough information we can go back and at least investigate if we're concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are, say, uh, in, in your article, actually, you give this interesting example of selling a vacation property as a principal residence versus selling a flip that you've lived in for a short period of time. Can you kind of talk about maybe some of the differences and um, potentially some of the red flags? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if you have a, a vacation property, whether it's a cabin, a cottage, um, a condo somewhere, whatever it is, a second property, maybe in addition to your city home, um, as long as you're buying those properties for personal use, right? And, and, and then you, then you can call them capital assets, capital property. So, so you're probably fine just making a decision about which one you want to call your principal residence. Normally what you would do is you'd find out which property has gone up the most in value per year of ownership. So the property that's gone up in value per year of ownership, most is probably the property you're going to reserve or you're going to call your principal residence. That's the one you'll probably want to sell tax-free. Right. Um, there are some exceptions to that. You know, if you decide to sell your cottage or your cabin and you haven't had it that long um, or, or, but it is a personally used property and let's say the gain on it's not that big, you still might shelter that property as your, as your principal residence um, because you'd rather shelter it and not pay any tax today. And maybe you're not going to sell your city home for 20 years. Right. And, and and if that's the case, then maybe you want to gain your tax savings today by calling it your principal residence. That, but all of that differs from a property that maybe you buy for a short period of time that actually was never intended to be a personal use property for you. It truly was designed to be something you were going to buy and sell at some point in the future. That was always your primary intention or maybe even just a, a secondary intention, but it was you know, one of your likely outcomes that you could have seen when you bought the property was that you were going to sell it for a profit in the not too distant future. So it's a bit of a gray area, but, but if, if, if you can, argue, if, if it's the truth is it's not truly a personal use property it was more something that you've always planned to sell in the short term. That's when you start getting into a gray area. I'm not saying you're going to lose that battle with CRA, mm-hmm. but, but, but if they come asking questions, you're going to have to justify what your intentions were when you bought it. Now it is hard for the tax man to, prove what your intentions were when you bought it, but you're going to need to build an ex- uh, a case for yourself that says, my intention was not to sell it at a profit in the short term. It was to keep it for my family, but because of this circumstance or that circumstance, we've had to sell. And so now we're selling. And in that case, you know, if you were truly meant to buy it as a personal use property, you might be fine. You could probably call it your principal residence. Right. 
No, that, that makes a lot of sense. How about like in, in markets like Toronto and Vancouver, where affordability is a real concern, a lot of people have basement suites, right? The mortgage mm-hmm. helper. How, how does that impact your uh, principal residence exemption? Well, the, the good news is that it, it's okay to rent out part of your principal residence. That can, as you know, that can really help uh, pay the mortgage or, or just pay some of the operating costs. Um, and as long as the rental activity is, and this, I'm going to use the tax law here and tell you what the law says, as long as that rental activity is ancillary to the use of the property as your principal residence, your primary residence. So in other words, as long as it's sort of secondary, an afterthought almost, then you're okay. Now, how does the government prove that, that it was just sort of ancillary? Well, if you're renting out more than 50% of the square footage of the property, you know, you're keeping a third of the place for yourself, you're renting out the balance for, to somebody else, that's going to be a problem. That, and clearly the rental property is the primary driver here and, and your principal residence is the ancillary use of the, of the property. So mm-hmm. I would say normally as long as you're renting out less than 50% of the square footage of the property, you're generally going to be okay. And so what that means is that your principal residence exemption should still fully be, able to fully be available on that property. As long as you do things right, uh, then you should be fine. But it starts with looking at, am I renting at less than 50%? But just one, one other comment I'll make here. There are two other things that you can do to hurt yourself here. Number one, if you claim depreciation on the property, so capital cost allowance on the building, even though it's your principal residence and you see to yourself, I'm renting part of it out, I want to depreciate that part of my residence, you run into a problem. Then you're not going to be able to claim the, the principal residence exemption on that property. The other thing you got to be careful of, which is even more, more, more something you probably got to be careful of, if you make a major, major renovation to the house in order to equip it to be, say, a granny suite you can now rent out or a basement apartment that didn't exist before, you make those kind of capital improvements to a property, CRA could come back and say, we're not going to allow the principal residence exemption on that part of your property. Hmm. So you just got to be very careful the extent of the renovations you do and, uh, and be careful not to claim depreciation. So in Vancouver, and I'm not sure if it's the same in Toronto, but we have, um, from the municipal perspective, we have authorized suites and then we have unauthorized suites. Um, right. And the difference being basically that the authorized suites have have usually separate entrances and uh, they're more self-contained and and they meet a certain um, uh, a certain certain guidelines basically by the city standard. Right. Does that impact how the you know in terms of um, of kind of being a formal separate suite, does that, does that change the way the CRA views the suite as, as no, it, it, it actually doesn't uh, surprisingly because, because municipal laws and tax laws are completely separate things. So for example, you could have a, uh, you could have a, an apartment in your pro on your property that is authorized or unauthorized. It doesn't really matter. It's from CRA, CRA's perspective. Um, let's say, let's say for example, you, you rent out, 60% of the square footage of your home and it's unauthorized. You might say, well, it's unauthorized. Therefore, you know, this should qualify as my principal residence. No, that's not the way CR looks at it. They ignore whether the unit is authorized or unauthorized. They'll just look at the square footage you're renting out. And it is the, is the place is the portion of the property you're renting out ancillary to your use as the place as a residence. Oh, that's 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 really interesting. So yeah. So Tim, you manage a lot of real estate investors' portfolios. Um, are there any common mistakes that you see on a regular basis? You know, I, I have seen I have seen families that I think um, are making some mistakes. I think for the most part, um, 
the people that I deal with day to day have have done a pretty good job in making their real estate investments. They're pretty smart about it, and, they, and they've done it. They learned over the years how to do it well. But some of the common mistakes that you see people making would include, um, well, I have one one client who, before Airbnb was a popular thing, um, effectively ran an Airbnb operation. It was more of a almost more of a hotel or a short term stay um, issue. It wasn't really, they weren't really renting up by the month, although some place, some people did stay by the month, but most people were staying for a couple of weeks or, or, or whatnot. And for that particular family, um, when I took a look at the returns they were making, I felt that they could make just as much money renting out those properties longer term to longer term tenants for a lot less work, <laughs> right. a lot less work. Now, having said that, I recognize there are people out there who are, are doing Airbnb and are thrilled with the thrilled with it because they're making so much money at it and they're happy with it. But for this particular family, they were not enjoying themselves. Their lives are all all consumed by maintaining these these properties, everything from cooking for some of the there's the, the uh, people staying in these properties to to cleaning regularly and it just didn't suit their lifestyle they didn't enjoy that so for them they felt they were doing really well making money on this and they were they were making money and i said to them look you could probably make just as much money this in their case they could have without spending as many hours and so for them it was more of a lifestyle decision and they're still thinking about maybe changing the nature of the property so they're not renting not, they're not turning tenants over as quickly. That's one family. Um, another common thing is, and this is, this, is the, this is a hard thing for families that have made all of their money in real estate, is convincing that there are, other, there are other investment alternatives which they need to build into their portfolio as well. So I'm not necessarily talking about stocks and bonds, so that's, that may be part of it. But when you are so heavily invested in real estate, it's not necessarily a well-diversified portfolio. Um, and I'm all, I'm all a big believer that when you know an industry really well and you're making money at it, and that's your primary quote-unquote business, um, but that's always going to be where your greatest assets are, and that's just fine. But I try to encourage you to diversify a little bit, so um, a little bit more. So we do encourage clients we work with to put some money into uh, either marketable securities or just in other even non-traditional kinds of investments, whether it's private equity, private businesses, whether it's private debt, so private mortgages, right. things like that, where they're making good returns, but their their returns are not dependent on the real estate market or even on equity markets necessarily. Right. So I think diversification is also a general rule that uh, I think people don't live by very well and, and probably could think about that. I also th- I've also seen people over-invest in properties. You know, this comes down to a sort of a mathematical question, but you know, it's fine to, to have properties that are in really, really good shape. I mean, I, I, we, we don't allow our properties to have any kind of deferred maintenance at all. We keep them up well. But we're also aware of the fact of, of what the market is like where we own these properties. And we'll never over-renovate a place or over-invest in a property to the point where we're just not going to have good returns on our investment. You know, because certain areas and certain markets will dictate certain rents. Uh, in Ontario, we have rent controls. So we're not free to just increase our rents as much as we want when we want. Um, so we have to be very careful about how much money we're investing in our properties. You want to maintain them, but you also want to be smart about it. And I'm, and maybe in that same vein, Tim, um, do you have any advice for people that maybe are starting out in real estate and, and want to make sure that they're uh, structuring their portfolio in a way that's really tax efficient? Yeah. Um, 
there's tax tips and then there's non-tax tips. I'd, I'd probably say to them, first of all, decide how you want to make money in real estate. Uh, as, as we talked off the top, there's a little bit, you know, there's different ways you can do it. I think buying and holding is, is, um, is absolutely one way to do it. And, you know, it's probably the most common way, but not the only way, you know, buy, fixing and flipping is another way. But if you decide that buying and holding is what you'd like to try first, then you want to know how to do the math on these things. And of course, what you need to understand are how cap rate, how cap rates work. And you want to understand um, how to do the math. And so what, what, what I would generally do is I would calculate the, the income of a property. Take this, If I go to see a property, I do a quick back of the napkin calculation. What I would do is I'd simply take the purchase price or what the selling price is. Okay. And I would assume I would find out how much rent I can collect on a monthly basis from the property if I rented it out fully. And uh, I'd add up those rents and I'd say, okay, what does that come to in, in one year? Uh, I'd divide the rent by two because I'm just going to assume that half my rent's going to disappear to to operating expenses. And then I end up with a number and that's my op- net operating income. And I take a look at that and I say, okay, um, what is that net operating income as a percentage of the purchase price of the property? Mm-hmm. And, and, and really that, that, that ties into cap rates today. So cap right. rates are pretty low today, right? So cap rates are pretty low, which means properties are very expensive. Um, and, and, um, and so you want to compare that percentage to what, what cap rates are like today. If you're buying a property at a, at a 6% cap rate in Toronto today, you're getting it pretty cheaply because prices, that's, that's properties a good are selling deal. For like, <laughs> yeah. Pro- pro- properties are selling for like three and 4% cap rates. So, right. Uh, and that's what we did in a property we bought not too long ago as a family. We looked at it and said, gee, we can get this property based on the price we can buy it at um, and based on the rents we can generate. You know, we're buying this at a 6.5% cap rate. That's pretty good. So all we did is we took the net, net operating income, divided it by the, the price we thought we could buy it for, and it looked to, looked to be pretty good. Anyway, that, that's the back of the napkin math I do when I look at a price and try to guesstimate what the, what the, what the price should look like. And then... Um, so I would tell people, have a little formula for yourself so as, you, as you look, that allows you to screen properties pretty quickly. And then sorry, I would say, Tim, sorry to cut you off there, because a, yeah. a lot of our investors actually use kind of the gross cap, where they take the annual rent and then they divide it by the purchase price and and then, right. they, and then they work from there. But I actually really like this idea. So you're you're taking the gross rent and then you're dividing it by two and then you're dividing it by the purchase price to get what yeah, you're that, calling your net. So I'm making an assumption. Yeah, I am. And I'm making an assumption that 50% of your rents will disappear to operating costs. Like with a, with a really efficient property that's, that's let me a little newer and needs less repairs. You know, you may be, your, your operating expenses may only be 40%, not right. 50%. Um, but I like to be a little more conservative and in a property that's really older and needs a lot of repair, you know, your, your expenses, your expenses could be 55%, 60%. You hope not, but you know, I think, I, that's how I sort of get a general idea whether the whether the property's priced in the ballpark I think it should be priced in. That's great. That's the way. That's the way I do it. Yeah, and yeah, you can use the gross rent multiplier and, and different ways to do it. But I would also say that okay, once you decide you like a property, you, you want to know how, you want to ask yourself how should I own it? How should I structure this? My preference has been to own properties inside of a corporation, um, just for liability reasons. So, for example, I have a holding company that owns active. A couple of holding companies that own the properties that we we own, so that the landlord is actually my corporation. So that it, you know, if for some reason a tenant ever decided to sue, or if someone slipped and fell on the on the stairs or something like that, then I'm I'm protected from that uh, legally. 
because I've got a corporation that serves a buffer between myself personally and and the property itself and, and any kind of lawsuit. So I, that's the way I've chosen to go, and right. it's probably smart, probably smart to do that. From a tax perspective, um, it's not a whole lot different doing it that way than owning it personally. There is uh, there are some annual costs you got to you got to incur because you got to have a tax account an accountant file your tax return for your corporation every year to the separate taxpayer, but. Um, but from a tax perspective, the net income you're paying tax on, it'll be either taxed in your hands or it's going to be taxed in the, comp- the corporation's hands. And either way, uh, the tax rate's going to be about the same. Not a big difference. In, in terms of in terms of incorporating or, or in, in terms of forming a holding company, I guess, at what stage should an investor think about going down that route? Is that something that, you know, is there a certain number of properties where it finally makes sense to kind of get a holdings or do you do that right off the hop if you're planning on making investments? I've, I've done it right off, right off the hop. Um, okay. You know, because, because owning properties personally and then transferring into a corporation later is a bit of an expensive maneuver. You can do it and it's, and it won't cost you any tax to do it either, but it's, it's, it's an expensive legal maneuver to do that. And it's, it's, It'll probably cost you ten grand to have that done later. So to set up the corporation today and and even buy your first property in a company, I think is just good advice. Right, right. The only exception to that is if is if you're buying a property that's going to be partly your principal residence, um, and you're only renting out part of it. In that case, a corporation is not entitled to claim the principal residence exemption on a property. Only a person is, only an individual is. So that if you're gonna, if you want to use your exemption, you're gonna have to own it yourself personally. Right, right, because you can't, you can't use the principal re- residence exemption in a holding company. Exactly. Right, right. Well, that's that's all fantastic advice. Um, so, Tim, how can uh, people find out more about um, what you guys are doing and and more about your what you're writing as well? So. Um, Easiest way to track me down is actually to look at the Globe Mail. I, I do write a weekly column on Friday morning, Fridays in the Globe Mail. You can you can read me online uh, or get the physical paper and, and read it. And uh, uh, my email address is there as well, um, which is uh, Tim at ourfamilyoffice.ca. My, my business is is it called Our Family Office? We are what we are what is known as a family office firm, which. Is a, is a fancy word for wealth advisory firm <laughs> uh, <laughs> for 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 affluent families. Um, you can uh, and you can you can go to my website as well to uh, uh, ourfamilyoffice.ca and track me down that way as well. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Tim, for taking the time today. No, I'm glad to do it anytime. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Globe Mail columnist Tim Sesnick. Really enjoyed our conversation, Matt, and uh, it's fantastic that we had Tim on the program. Yeah, you know what? I missed that uh, conversation, and I'm really upset I did, although listening back, I, I, le- I learned a lot. I always do, uh, talking to guys like Tim, and that's why I read his column every week, and uh, that's why we should have him back on the program. I think we should have him back, and if you guys have accounting questions for Tim, let us know, because when we do bring him back on, we will ask your questions, and it's always good to get more information on tax planning, because it's the most effective planning. Uh, 100%. 
What else do we got? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's our website. Head over there. We have a news feed. We also have amazing resources such as private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's realtor level information in real time. And guess what? It is the best research tool out there. If you're not using private client services to search Vancouver real estate, you're doing it wrong. Another thing to note is Realtor.ca is going to have sold prices in Go the new on. year. Now, the obvious thing, and I'm sure somebody's thinking this out there, is, hey, that makes private client services redundant, doesn't it? Now information's free. Not true. Here's the thing, Adam. That sold price information will only be available after that property has registered at the land titles office. So if we write an offer tomorrow, it's basically three weeks to three months, maybe longer before it registers at the land titles office. You will not find out that information until that time in public. Private client services, on the other hand, real time, real time. When you find out is when we find out. So it's uh, we're all about uh, breaking down the barriers to access here at the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Th- that's a hundred percent accurate. We also have that mobile app. We Speaking do of breaking down barriers, augmented reality. This allows you to look in buildings from the street and find out what is active and what is sold. That's right. You just point. You don't even have to click. Actually, you just there's point. no clicking anymore. So very, picture this. Very few clicking. You have to open. You have to open and point. Yeah. I mean, it's a brave new world. It is a brave new world, man. Uh, what else do we got? We got the live wire. We do have the live wire. Sign up to our mailing list. You get deal of the month. You get awesome information, tips, tricks for real estate investing or for buying and selling just in general. And you're Matt- gonna wanna, you, You're going to want to be on that list. How do people reach you though? Call me anytime, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And, and Secret Scalina? Secret Scalina is not here today. Beep, 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 beep. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Take care, guys. And uh, like we said before, stay tuned. December's a big month for the Vancouver Real Estate yeah, Podcast. so is January. God, <sighs> this is exciting. Oh, take care. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 